John Borganovo joins us from Cork. John is the author of Spies, Informers and the Sinn Féin Society, a book about the War of Independence in Cork City. He's now written a book on the battle for Cork City in August 1922 in the Civil War. He teaches history at UCC. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. What drew you to writing about the Civil War after your book about the War of Independence in Cork City? Well, I was actually approached by Mercier. They're doing a series of books on the military battles of the Civil War because there hasn't been a lot of work done on the actual conflict since Michael Hopkinson's book, Green Against Green, in the late 80s. So there really hasn't been that much new work done, and Mercer is releasing this whole series that's for a broader audience than an academic audience. I'm really pleased with that because I get a lot of feedback from folks here in Cork who are very uh, fond of their history, and a lot of the history isn't really written for them. It's written for other historians, which they kind of find frustrating. So I saw this as a good opportunity. Your last book, if we can start the story sort of at the end of that, was about the War of Independence in Cork City, and that was ended very abruptly on July the 11th, 1921, with the truce. Was that a big surprise for the Cork men in the IRA? Well, the truce seemed to have been anticipated to some extent, like they had an idea there was negotiations going on. The terms on which the truce was agreed weren't approved necessarily. So they would have been notified that some negotiations are going on without really having a say on the matter. I think the more surprising thing, it seems that there wasn't really any effort to consult with provincial leaders of the IRA about the treaty itself and about the treaty negotiations. And the folks who were in charge of the IRA down here in Cork, which was kind of the most powerful element of the IRA nationally, ended up being very surprised by the treaty negotiations and the treaty terms specifically. Mm-hmm. And somewhat disappointed, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm very disappointed. And according to Florio Donahue, who was kind of the center of a lot of this big leader in the Munster IRA, Collins had come down to Cork right before he went to London and kind of assured everybody, the main leaders, that there wasn't going to be any kind of settlement that would have a chance of approving a settlement. But he also mentioned to a couple of the top leaders, to Donahue and Liam Lynch, that there might not be a republic. He might not be coming back with the Republic. And they found that very shocking. That was the first indication they had uh, that there was going to be something short of a Republic. But that wasn't necessarily expressed to the wider audience as well. And this was also just before Collins left. So it doesn't seem like there was that much effort to reach out and prepare folks for a Dominion resolution to the crisis. The IRA at the time and since have been known as the lads and the boys. In a way, these were young men, mostly working class young men. Did they feel they were being sidelined by the treaty and all that went on? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I also think that there was a sense also that, yes, they were, they were young. Most of them they were, were working class, were of a, of a lower social class than the, definitely from the previous kind of Irish party leadership, but also from the what was emerging as kind of the Sinn Féin elite. The TDs were, a lot of them had university degrees, more from the professions, uh, but the, the real kind of top leadership of the IRA would have been down another social notch once you got outside of the Dublin leadership. At the provincial level, it seemed to be had been down a notch from the Sinn Féin leadership, and I think that played into some of the tensions, and I also think that that played into some of the public opposition to the IRA in that they were perceived as having risen above their station. The idea that they were calling the shot was seen as turning the normal social status upside down. And mm-hmm. that, that, I think that was part of the, of the dynamic going forward. The truce period itself was a period when the IRA was sort of in control of much of the country and in control of Cork City and County. For some people, particularly on the Free State side, this was not only a turning of society upside down, but a breakdown of law and order. There were bank robberies, land seizures, and most controversially of all in Cork, the question of the killing of Protestants and sectarian killings. The 
British evacuated very rapidly. So they evacuated within a day or two of the treaty being approved of the Doyle. And within about two weeks or three weeks, you know, the Oxys, the public face of the Crown Forces, were, were gone totally. The RIC were disbanded with about six weeks or eight weeks, and troops were pretty much gone within about two months, from, except for a few areas. So that created just a power vacuum basically. And, you know, keep in mind also that the IRA weren't, weren't a full-time organization. They were, most of them were still working, had jobs that weren't full-time members of uh, the IRA to keep order. There was no Irish police force. The British had abandoned and pulled right out. And things like land tension really erupted. There was a lot of labor radicalism. There were a number of Soviets declared up in Tipperary and North and Limerick. Here in Cork, there was a railway workers were basically declared a Soviet of all the railways in Munster right the day before a settlement was announced. We also had a port of Cork Soviet the previous summer. So there was labor radicalism, there was land agitation, and then as you write, the, the, there was a, a sectarian, seemingly a sectarian series of killings in West Cork, which were controversial, which Peter Hart kind of first brought to public attention following the killing of a Cork IRA officer by some local Protestants uh, in a kind of confusing uh, home invasion for a car, it seems like, and about nine or ten West Cork Protestant farmers were killed, but it definitely added to the sense that that there was instability and there was violence and there was anarchy. And now you also got to factor in at the same time, this was pretty much the height of the troubles up north, um, mm-hmm. and they, these were the worst months in Belfast. It seemed like really bad things were happening. Maybe there was going to be an expulsion of the Catholics up in Ulster. That was the fear, at least. So you had all this sectarian anxiety also rising, along with social and economic agitation. There was also, like, ordinary crime. There were criminals going around robbing places. Some of them were in the IRA, some of them weren't. So it seems like there was a lack of law and order, and that really contributed to the the general anxiety and the general kind of desire for stability. So was civil war then inevitable between the government and, as they would have seen it, the mutineers, the irregulars, the forces of anarchy? No, I wouldn't necessarily put the IRA down as this main force of anarchy. I think they were... They were part of a destabilizing element, but there was all kinds of things. Basically, there was no government functioning. That was a big thing. The Civil War was very close to not happening. When you look at the pact election, when you look at the Army Unification Agreement, which was approved, they were very close to avoiding a Civil War. Both sides were surprised when the Civil War actually broke out. May and June, it really looked like it wasn't going to happen. It was only really the British insisting that the terms of the treaty would be upheld, really pinning Michael Collins, the provisional government, down when they were trying to work their way over to the Republicans. And then this was kind of driven in when Field Marshal Wilson was assassinated in London by the the London IRA, who seemed to have been doing that off their own bat. Word came from London that the provisional government was going to have to move against those folks occupying the four courts. And I think the interesting thing about the four courts was that at that time, there wasn't two IRAs, pro-treaty IRA and anti-treaty IRA. There was also the anti-treaty IRA was split into a moderate and a hardline faction. And the moderates were mainly the Munster IRA, the Cork IRA, um, folks in Kerry and Limerick and Tipperary. And then the real hardline elements were the guys who occupied the four courts, Ernie O'Malley, Liam Mills, Rory O'Connor. And they actually locked Liam Lynch and, and the Southern officers out of the four courts. And so it seemed like when the shelling happened that the Munster element and the kind of moderate element wasn't going to get involved. 
but they'd actually been working their way towards reunification, and then they engaged. And then once they decided to engage, the fighting quickly spread um, beyond Dublin. And I think that surprised not just outside observers, but I think it really surprised the participants themselves. But down in Cork, would I be right in saying that almost all of the IRA was anti-treaty? Yeah, all the brigades were anti-treaty. There was maybe part of one or two of the battalions were pro-treaty. Cork number one brigade. In the city itself, there are 16 IRA companies, and 15 of them were uh, anti-treaty. So yes, every so virtually the whole IRA was anti-treaty. That being said, a lot of guys refused, went neutral, mm-hmm. and especially when the fighting broke out, more and more in the, of the membership of the rank of file went decided not to participate. They were against the treaty, but they didn't see how the civil war was going to solve anything. And they also there was also a fear that the civil war might give the British a reason to reoccupy the country and have uh, support for reoccupying the country. That one of the constant kind of reasons given for, for not giving Ireland home rule or, or self-government was that they were incapable of it, that they were incapable of governing themselves. And so there was a fear that this civil war was going to prove the fact that the Irish were incapable of governing themselves and give justification to a reoccupation. And among the leadership down here, as I said, I mentioned Flory O'Donoghue, who was a main provincial leader. He went neutral. And then the the officer commanding the Cork Number 1 Brigade, Sean Hegarty, who was a real dynamic force and really the, the main man here in the city in mid-Cork, he went neutral as well. And then so that kind of created a little bit of a vacuum. And then more and more guys went neutral as as the fight kind of erupted.